he once told me, and this had to do with raising children, but I think it extends to, if you can trade out the word child for problem or public policy issue, he said, sometimes the worst thing you can do for a child is to solve the wrong problem. So my dad just really, his, his wisdom resonated because sometimes with public policy issues, the worst thing we can do is fix the wrong problem because you walk away thinking we, we, we got it, we took care of it, but in fact you didn't and that fire is still smoldering over there in the corner. And here we are again with Jane Johnson. Jane, are we halfway through the legislative session? We're week four in the books right now. So talk to me. Are we, is this it? Are we halfway through? Is this halftime? It's not halftime. We don't take a break, but like, what's going on here? It's hard to, it's hard to talk about a halftime in the legislative session because most of the really big stuff tends to happen in the last two weeks. So a lot of the, the groundwork has been laid um, up till now. And so, and a lot of bills that are probably not going to go anywhere. It's, you know, that their tombstones are being inscribed right now. So there's a lot of things that are, that are done, but really the, the legislative session doesn't, the budget doesn't fit finalize until usually the very last day. That's one of the reasons why many years they don't end on time on the, on Friday at five o'clock on the last day of the, the regularly scheduled legislative session. They don't drop the hankies and call signy die because still working out the budget or they had trouble getting the budgets onto the desks of the legislators 72 hours before the, the last day of session. So, but we have, there's a lot behind us right now. A lot of committees have met, a lot of bills have been heard, a lot of bills have been amended. The good news is that FASL's bills are still moving and they're still in play. And we had a very positive week last week. So we're on the back nine. We'll keep with the sports analogies on this. So now we're on the back nine. We made it through the front nine. Many tombstones, like you said, people have uh, you know, dropped out uh, and so didn't make the cut. So we made the cut, thankfully. And so are you saying like each hole is going to get progressively more challenging as we go through? Or like what, what what's ahead of us right now? What do we have in play and what's ahead of us? I think that would be a good way to recap and then kind of see what we got going on with this back nine. Well, you know, every legislative session is divided into two things. There's policy and there's budget. So on the policy side, we had a bill that um, House Bill 427 and Senate Bill uh, 794 that amended Chapter 413 related to the Florida Independent Living Council. It also increased the amount of funding that the JP Pass program receives. So that on Monday, our House bill was passed by uh, the Post-Secondary Education and Lifelong Learning Subcommittee. I always forget the, the name of that committee because it's too long. So it passed, and in the process of passing it, that the sponsor made an amendment to the title of it and changed members of the of Phil of to voting members. That allowed us to then change the committee of reference. So now the next committee this bill goes to is Ways and Means instead of Appropriations, which is very positive. So we think that the bill will be heard in Ways and Means, and then that it'll be done. That that means it goes then to the House floor. We're in play there and moving along. What we need to make one more committee stop, and then go for a full vote on the House floor. The Senate counterpart will be heard tomorrow morning at 8.30 by the Senate Education Committee. So we're very excited about that. Senator Aaron Bean is our, he's a champion of Centers for Independent Living. So we have full confidence that the vote will get a good, a thumbs up by, by that committee. And that'll be, that's the second of three committees. So that our bill will have one more committee it has to go to on the Senate side before it can go to the Senate floor. So, and that won't be the House and or the Senate and Means. Do they have a, a, a committee that kind of does the same thing the House and Ways and Means Committee is set up on that side? 
that's actually a still house rocks um, issue, but it's there's a Senate Appropriations Committee, but our bill doesn't call for an appropriation. It calls for what's called a redirect general revenue, which is why Ways and Means is looking at it, not appropriations. So anyway, so we um we are really hoping that we'll see um, both the House and Senate versions make progress this week on towards their final stop. So, but it, it's interesting you said, are we almost done? You can have a lot of activity in the first half of the session, but it's really, it's those last, the, those last actions that happen that have the most impact. So we can get our bills passed through all the committees, but if they don't get heard on the House floor or the Senate floor, they're not going to pass. So we have to jump over a bunch of hurdles, but we, but really the final test or the final uh, decider of the outcome will be whether they go to the Senate and House floor and whether both chambers pick them up, whether they, the both bills are identical at the end, then they pass. One gets laid on the table, the other one passes, and then they have to go on to the governor for his signature. So it's really, um, it's hard to, hard to know what the halfway point is, but there's an awful lot of activity over 60 days. And it's almost like they have to go through multiple dress rehearsals, the bills do, before they can sort of do their final performance and, and find out if they get to win the Oscar. Wow, that bill so, on Capitol Hill is an endurance athlete. I got to tell you, it's it really, absolutely, absolutely marathon runner for sure. On the budget side, we had put in a request for $900,000, as you have mentioned on previous um, podcasts, for $60,000 to go to each of the 15 SILs to fund additional transition services. Well, the Senate's budget came out and did not pick up our issue, which was a disappointment, obviously, to us. But they also, in the section of the budget where our issue would have been, which is in vocational rehabilitation, there were very few what they call special projects or new funding. So um, on the House side, though, we were included at $450,000, which is, I know it's not as much as we asked for, but it's um, there, aren't, there were not very many projects included in the vocational rehabilitation budget, and ours was the most expensive one. So we got more money than any other special project. And just because we're in at 450 doesn't mean we'll stay there. We can always get that increased. Or, and that's our goal is to get it back up to the $900,000. So we were very pleased. Representative Ray Placencia is the chair of the Education Appropriations Subcommittee. And we found out last week that his wife runs a nonprofit that works with uh, Latino families to make sure that they have access to accommodations for IEP meetings. She's they have a nephew with profound autism, and they're very, very committed to serving kids with disabilities and making sure there's equal access, both culturally as well as... That's great. Yes, it is great. So we have a, we have a wonderful champion in the, um, the House Higher Education Appropriations Committee. So we were thrilled that he gave us more money than any other project, but we have to hang on to that. So we've sent emails to all of the members of the committee, thanking them for keeping us in the budget. Now we know it's kind of like putting, you know, chumming in, chumming the waters. People know we're in there and they're going to go after our line item. And they're going to say that we need that money more than they do. So we have to work really hard to hang on to what we've got in the budget and keep it there until we get to the end of session and hopefully increase it. The other good news in the budget is that in both the Senate and the House, they level funded SILs at the same level that we have. That's huge. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah, no cuts to centers for independent living. During these times, like that's a victory, I think. Yeah, yes. Really seeing how much you know, money's coming in uh, from all angles. To have level funding is a victory at this point in time, I believe. 
And then the, the bill, House Bill 173 by Representative Allison Tant, that bill also moved past its last committee and was approved unanimously, which is exciting because she amended her bill. Wow, unanimously. That's great. Unanimously, yeah. She got lots of compliments for bringing the issue to the table, and it has to do with making sure that when a child or a student is transitioning from high school to post-secondary ed or employment, that they're provided with information about all the options. And one of the required bits of information that the schools have to provide is Centers for Independent Living, who they are, where they are, and what they Huge. Do. Huge. Yes. We got into that. And unanimous. That really does say something about what she's really standing for us and, and her ability to speak and people to listen. She, what a champion. That's that's really great to hear. Very encouraging. Because we do yes. need to be in schools more and we do need to be one of those people that you know are allowable to be in there. Gets over many barriers. This is huge. Thank you, Jane. Yes, it Sorry. is. No, and I was just going to say, just, just like during the pandemic where SILs were considered essential providers, we're part of the infrastructure, and that's what we're hoping this bill will help to achieve, that schools and parents and other people out in the community will recognize that Centers for Independent Living are critical infrastructure in every community, Amen. and yeah. we're a one-stop shop for all disabilities and all ages. So trying to raise our profile is really important to furthering our public policy and budget goals, too, because if people don't know who you are, then they're going to be less likely to put their support behind something that you're requesting. So. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. And it just helps us to get our foot in the door as well. And with, especially at school board levels within the schools themselves to just, you know, be able to get information out to students and parents and really is a huge door opener for all of us. Yeah. So very excited for that. Yeah, a lot we, good we can do there. Yeah, go on. These are exciting updates. Well, um, you know, this week is we're doing this on a Monday, which is different from normal. So we're looking at the week ahead and we do, like I said, um, in less than 24 hours, our Senate bill is, is going to be heard by the Education Committee. And then later this week, we expect our the House version to be heard by the Ways and Means Committee. And what we understand is that they've already, what they call scored the bill, which means they looked at its fiscal impact and they, they gave us a thumbs up, which is why they're putting it on a committee. It's rare that a committee chair would put a bill on an, the agenda for a committee they didn't think it was going to pass. Yeah, waste their time. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Every once in a while, you'll see it happen and and there'll be like a a curveball and and the votes you thought you had won't materialize. But in this case, we think we're going to get another thumbs up. And I neglected to mention that that our policy bill that increases the funding for Centers for Independent Living or for the JP Pass program picked up two more sponsors. Representative Jenna Persons-Malika is our primary sponsor, but then Tant became a co-sponsor, um, co and then so did um, Representative Daisy Morales. She's a Democrat out of Orlando, and a Representative Michelle Salzman, who's a Republican out of Escambia. Fantastic. So we have two Republican and two Democratic sponsors for our bill, which is a really nice bipartisan show of support for the issue, because you know I've always believed that disability issues transcend parties and transcend parties because they're universal. It's one in four people have a disability, and it's not something that should ever be looked at through a partisan lens. So I'm really pleased to see that they recognize the universal um, significance of what we're trying to do. We are all in this together. It doesn't matter about political affiliation. Disability does not care. And again, this is a place where we can be united. And if we can unite political parties around disability, I think that can really go a long ways in other areas, but long ways to go in disability for sure. But this should unite everybody. We are all in this together. I love hearing this. Yes, yes, it's exciting. So another sort of non-legislative thing that's happening that, but to me is directly related to 
our legislative efforts is last week we began doing the first vaccination sites at Centers for Independent Living. We had our first in Orlando. We had another site on Friday in Broward and then also on the West Coast. And this is really exciting because um, Centers for Independent Living are the, the only place in Florida that has dedicated itself to making vaccinations fully accessible. The centers are paying for the transportation that people need to get to and from the center to get the vaccination. They're providing all the accommodations a person might need, including ASL interpreters or you know whatever a person might need. So this is um, this is one of a kind. Yep. Sales are stepping in the gap here in a very unique way, um, doing what they what they do, which is um, unique compared to any other organization in the state. So we will be reaching out to Governor DeSantis to see if we can get him to come to one of the vaccination sites so he can he can see the good work of the SILs, but also so that he can highlight how important the SILs are and the role that they play. Absolutely. Yeah, fully accessible you know, places to get the vaccination. I'm not sure that really is going on in many other places to be this accessible for people. And and I know centers have been working very hard contacting all their consumers, people they don't know, identifying what these access and functional needs are, and then overcoming them by being centers for independent living. This is what we do. We adapt and come to us if uh, it's needed. It's wonderful to hear this. It is. Yeah. Getting, if we can get the governor or the first lady to one of the sites, it will help again raise that profile for the SILs. So legislators and constituents can see that we perform, the SILs perform important work every day. We, they fill a role that no other organizations really are, are assigned to do. Um, their mission is unique and it's not duplicated. This is, so I think that those are the kinds of messages that I really think are important so that as we are trying to expand the scope of services that SILs provide, we'll obviously need resources. And when people can un- have a better understanding of that critical role that SILs play in their communities, I think they will be more favorable about providing the resources that need to go along with the increased services. Yeah, I think it's great whenever we can get uh, politicians and decision makers to come out and see firsthand what happens, because I I believe, I would like to think that seeing that face-to-face really does talk on the the humane, humanistic side of what we do. We serve eyeballs. We serve people. We serve real people in their real lives. And so then the return on investment, like you're saying, is a huge piece of what we're also delivering. So, you know, they can take that with them when they're looking at the numbers and, and where to spend the good taxpayers' money. A good investment is with us, especially like you were saying, for these transition services, the amount we save the state, the the taxpayers, in terms of keeping people in their community, keeping people healthy, perhaps getting them vaccinated sooner, and if not, would have been sick, and then more money spent, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I love that that these pieces are falling together, and and would love to see somebody, especially at the governor's level, coming out to some of the sites to see what's going on. That would be fantastic. We're working on it. Of course, it's a busy time of the year in Tallahassee, so I don't know um, if we'll yeah, be successful. Yeah, not many road trips, probably. <laughs> so, so what's going on with um, the the one bill that was being proposed about protecting businesses uh, in case there was a transmission of COVID while people were accessing some of their uh, services? What's going on with that? So late on Friday, um, it it did pass on the Senate. It got very contentious. It passed on party lines. Actually, there were a couple of bills. There's there's another bill related to public demonstrations and riots. Mm-hmm. Um, that was House Bill One. But so this, the House bill passed all of its committees. It passed the, the House and went, was sent over to the Senate, and it passed 
eight with 83 to 31. So pretty much on party lines um, that most, most of the Republicans approved it, but 31, 31 people did not. So when the House bill passes, they send it to the Senate and the Senate picks up the House bill and either lays it on the table, which is a term that they use in the legislature to mean that they won't use that number, they'll pick up the other one, or they will lay the Senate bill on the table and pick up the House bill. Then both chambers will vote on whichever one they decide will be the bill and um, send it to the governor for his signature. And we can pretty much be sure that he will sign it because this all happened late on Friday. I wanna make sure I have the absolute. Um... Okay, so the House bill did get sent over to the Senate and the Senate put the House bill on the table. They voted on their bill and that bill has, is now on its way to the governor. So yeah, this was a bill that takes effect as soon as the governor signs it, which means that if it happens this week, then effective this week, there's immunity from liability for businesses and they rolled in those healthcare providers as well. So it's a comprehensive protection bill. And most likely that what the governor will do is just plan a day that he's going to sign it um, around a press conference. It'll probably be a It'll probably have the House. I would imagine it'll be in Tallahassee if they have the Senate president and the Speaker of the House there with him. That's, I mean, that's a prediction, but that's usually what would happen. Is it? It's a pretty big public relations opportunity for the policymaker. Yeah, this sounds like this has been the hottest ticket uh, so far in the legislative session. That's kind of cut through and got to his desk very fast. Yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing what's more in in this uh, bill as it begins into effect and what part of it may work, what part of it may you know be concerning to keep our eyes on, and where the holes are perhaps in this too. You know, there could be some advocacy in there. So, devil's in the details, right? right? So I'm sure we'll yes. learn more about it as it gets into. <laughs> but I do think it's something there as SILs become vaccination sites, they're going to be thankful that there are provisions so that if they are, if the SILs are, if they're adhering to CDC guidelines and doing everything they can to make it the venue safe, we want to make sure the SILs are protected for doing that good work and not subject to, to litigation for something that might happen, you know, that had nothing to do with anything that they could have controlled. That's right. That's right. And at the same time, we want to make sure that if someone is negligent and uh, those other things that, you know, there's protections there, too, for the person that you know, might have unduly uh, contracted the COVID virus as well. That's a needle to thread there. And so we'll definitely keep an, a close eye on that one as it goes along. Well, all right. We're getting to that point, Jane. Do you have any Sill House rocks for us and or any quotes to leave us with? We always enjoy this segment of the episode. Well, on the Stillhouse Rocks, I, I did want to explain that whole idea of how how bills ultimately become law because it is a it's a a winding road. Um, but when you when you start out, you normally have one legislator who has the concept. They have to find someone in their correspond in the in their counter chamber. So if House member has language that they want to push forward as a bill, they have to find a senator that will pick up that language also. So that you have two bills running side by side, and inevitably bills have to get amended along the way because someone identifies something that isn't quite right or someone says, hey, could you just add this to it? It would actually make it a better bill. So, and that happened to us with our House bill. So the House bill moves along, the Senate bill moves along. They go have to, this year at least, all of the bills had at least three committees that they had to go through. There's no set number of committees, but three seem to be the magic formula for this, this year's session. So each of the bills have to be heard in their corresponding committees and be amended. If the House bill gets amended, then the Senate bill has to get amended. And then they finally make it to the floors of their chambers. Each chamber has to vote on it, on the bills. At that point, the bills might not be identical, but they have to become identical 
So then on the floor, if the House bill is not identical to the Senate and the Senate's going to be the one, the bill that passes, then the House has to amend its bill on the floor to line up with the Senate. And then they both vote. And then one chamber sends their bill over to the other chamber. And then, as I mentioned earlier, they lay the bill on the table. That's those are, that's the legal terminology that you see. So they lay the bill on the table so that only, only one actually goes to final passage. And then that gets sent to the governor. It's an interesting process. There are some things along the way that can happen where in the case of Representative Tant's bill that includes um, Centers for Independent Living, the bill was referenced to an appropriations committee. But when we looked at the bill, we couldn't really see that it was going to cost any money. And the staff analysis, because at every committee stop, staff have to do an analysis of the bill that all of the members have access to so they can fully understand its impact. In that analysis, they, there's a, a section that they have to fill out that tells if there's any state or local government fiscal impact, which means, is this going to cost us money or does, does the legislature have to appropriate money or will it cost money to implement? And in that bill, there was no fiscal impact, but it got referred to an appropriations committee, which is a burden because appropriations committees, they have a lot of bills that they have to hear and it suggests it's going to cost money. So we had to go to the chair, to help the staff and make the case that there is this bill doesn't cost anything take a look at it they agreed so they they removed the referral to the appropriations committee and then let it go on its way so good catch just some of the like behind the scenes behind the scenes things that that happen but you can't remove a referral without also amending the bill so you have to the two things have to be timed um just right so anyway it's just uh, i think the the message there is just how um the analogy to making sausage, that there's a lot of things in in sausage that you probably don't want to know about because they're not body parts that you would normally want to eat. Um, (laughs) This is basically the same thing with getting a bill from concept to to law. It's There's a lot of pieces and parts and negotiations along the way that most people don't see, don't have any idea about, but lots of relationships that have to be touched upon along the way because every committee is has members and you, you're reaching out to every single member of each committee at each stop along the way. It's really, sometimes when I step back, I I'm, I kind of marvel at how many moving parts there are and that it all yeah. has come together. And then every two years, the parts change because we have new legislators. So it's really... <sighs> The deck gets shuffled. Yeah, there are a lot of parts. I almost feel like we need to have a flow chart on how the bills in tandem go through each of the different hoops that they got to go through and all these other kind of things. It's, it is a lot of moving parts. And the fact that like things can come together when they do, it, I think gives me more appreciation for everything that had to happen before it got to a part uh, where it gets signed off on, whether I like it or not. It's a, it's a lot of hoops that people got to go through. Yeah, it is, but it's um, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's it's such a fun process. It's a check and balance. If it works right, I would imagine it's a check and balance. You know, you got two teams trying to work on a concept together. Hopefully, they come together in a way that makes coherent sense. And hopefully, being through the system that it sifted a lot out a lot of the things it doesn't need, and then with good minds looking at all different sides of it, gets put together in a way that incorporates everything. So I think conceptually, it's it's a great way and process. Uh, logistically, in the real world, wow, that's where I could see it going sideways. But <laughs> So my quote is from my dad, which is funny because he's still alive, um, but he's one of the, he's probably the smartest person I've ever met. And he's, he's just, he's very wise. And at this point in the legislative session, I feel like I've consumed so many contentious issues and, and watched people debate on so many different things and try to fix problems. Um, 
that um, his words resonated with me this week for some reason, but um, he once told me, and this had to do with raising children, but I think it extends to, if you can trade out the word child for problem or, or public policy issue, he said, sometimes the worst thing you can do for a child is to solve the wrong problem. And I think that's really important because so many times we try to come up with public policy fixes for things and we look at what's most present and sort of on fire and fix that without fixing the, the causal factors behind it that you can't, that aren't as, as evident. And so, you know, in, in the case of a child, if a child is presenting with an issue, if you try to fix that issue, you might wind up ignoring some other deeper problem that's underneath the surface in that child, an insecurity or um, an angst. And with public policy, a lot of times you I, there's a lot of debate about the, the child welfare system and the guardian ad litem program. And as I watched that, I thought, you know, I don't think the guardian ad litem program is broken. If it's not effective enough, are we asking the right question? Why do we need such an effective guardian ad litem program if we are paying the child welfare agencies to do that work? If their work is bad that we need we need to you know, get attorneys to do be guardians ad litem instead of volunteers, then doesn't that say more about what's not happening further upstream with the foster care system? So so anyway, so I, I just, so my dad just really, his, his wisdom resonated because sometimes with public policy issues, the worst thing we can do is fix the wrong problem because you walk away thinking we, we, we got it, we took care of it, but in fact you didn't and that fire is still smoldering over there in the corner. So the quote is, the worst thing that we can do for a child is to solve the wrong problem? Yes. And, and as you were saying that, you mentioned streaming, and the concept of upstreaming was taught to me in a way that involved children, whereas, you know, there's these two people, they're sitting there by a river, and they see a, a child, you know, floating down, drowning, and they both jump in, and are, both are needed to help get the kid out, and then all of a sudden, there's another kid floating down the river, and they both have to jump in the stream, they both have to save him, and then there's like two kids floating down at the same time, and then they still keep doing it by the hundreds. Finally, one of them just gets out, one that's rescuing them and starts walking up the river and the other one's going what are you doing we got to keep you know getting these kids out he goes I'm, gonna, I'm going up river to punch the person who's throwing these kids in the water <laughs> like i'm gonna take care of the problem you know that's really causing all these things to be floating down the river i and, love uh, that i love that and that's exactly yes <laughs> you know get, get you know the source of the problem and solve the issue there but we're so busy pulling people right out of the river that we're not addressing what is upstream and 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 for me it, it it's a tough one like in the real world logistically because uh, i mean the urgency of now there are people drowning there are people coming down the river to leave that and to go up, upstream to really get the root cause of things for people that are on the front lines and, and running centers often i think it's a very difficult task especially as directors trying to support the staff uh, that are in our charge but at the same time like you and others and and how we can really ad address some of these upstream issues that are causing you know many organizations like us to be downstream addressing these issues and, and the convergence of that is so important it is and i know that you are um you very much are aware of the importance of the social determinants of health but those social determinants are the, those are all upstream issues those are upstream issues 100 percent. and centers address those yeah they do they do so anyway so that just really resonated with me this week and, so he's not a philosopher <laughs> i love that but he's my dad <laughs> and I like quoting people that are still alive. <laughs> they don't have to be artists like that have a painting or something and, and then become valuable until then. We, we need this kernels of wisdom 
uh, as much as we can. So I, I, I appreciate getting quotes from live people, especially someone as influential uh, as your father and probably explains why you're so wonderful, Jane Johnson, <laughs> and doing what you're doing and involved at the Capitol, knowing how the process works, being a really good collaborator, seeing the bigger part uh, that are in play, and uh, then not letting small things get by us that could really, you know, allow things to go sideways so always appreciated our time together getting the word out to the people what's going on halfway got the back nine more fun to come jane johnson thank you thank you tony all right onward upward we go on to the back nine thanks for listening to the independent life podcast brought to you by the center for independent living of north central florida if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support advocate and empower each other to live the independent life.